Welcome to the 2010 Mutual Goals session. Before we begin, in full disclosure, I'd like to note this session is being recorded to be one of ASLH's podcasts. So when we get to the discussion period, I'll be turning the mic, so please speak loudly and you know, remember that your voice is going to be recorded. And it shouldn't be an issue, but I wanted to make sure everyone knew. I'm Rhonda Newton. I'm the program coordinator at the Pennsylvania Heritage Society, which is the nonprofit partner of the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission. And I'm also the outgoing chair of ASLH's Professional Development Committee. Scott Carley of the Alaska State Museum conceived of these mutual goals sessions and has chaired them for the past three years, but he was unable to join us this year. He originally saw this session as an opportunity for professionals with different priorities to find common ground. For example, curators versus cur um, conservators, or last year's popular curators versus educators. <laughs> Recognizing the success of Scott's idea, the ASLH Professional Development Committee has made this one of its sponsored sessions for the last two years. As we were discussing our ideas for 2010, we realized the topic we were interested in went beyond job titles. We were thinking of conflicts between development staff and educators, or event staff and curators, and realized that the issue was really one of balancing mission versus money, it's, which is, of course, a core issue for all nonprofits, not just museums and historic sites. I'd like to share an illustration from my institute, my institutions, and I should note this is technically hearsay. I was in the office next door at the time this meeting occurred, but I did verify my quote with my colleague. Last year, as we began a campaign to raise funds to support the renovation and reinstallation of our mastodon, which I still can't tell you the difference between a mastodon and a mammoth, but it'll give you a general idea, and the surrounding paleontology gallery, the exhibit designer involved categorically refused to consider including signage recognizing donors in her exhibit designs, saying it was whoring out the exhibits. I will now note that that exhibit designer no longer works for the museum as she was laid off when state funding was cut 40% last year. <laughs> we realized that no one would stand up and say that it's all about money or it's all about mission. Every institution has to find its own balance between the two. So to sort of uh, lead us into the discussion, I've asked two of our colleagues to share how their institutions work to find a balance because uh, it, and it will be different for everyone. Each will speak for about 10 minutes as well if they choose to comment on each other's or they can wait till, uh, till the full discussion. And then um, our plan is to have at least 30 minutes for audience discussion. Our two presenters are first, Norman Burns is the director of May Mount in Richmond, which includes a historic house and an arboretum and he will tell you a lot more about it. He is also an incoming member of ASLH Council. And there's been a slight speaker change. <laughs> um, Carrie Watkins, who is the executive director of the Oklahoma City National Memorial Museum, was supposed to join us. But last week, she contacted me and said that um, Bill Clinton, who was on their board, had called. And she is at the Clinton Global Initiative event this week in New York. So luckily, we have Stacy Weddington. <laughs> Well, you know, she could have just said, tough luck, but instead she said that Stacy Weddington, the development director, would do a wonderful job uh, talking about um, where they find the balance between mission versus money at their institution. So, do you want to coin toss who goes first? Well, I'll go first because one last slide doesn't have a coin. 
just quick switch. And just the little red. The red is the uh, That's pointer. That's the pointer. And then the forward and backwards is the. Yep. Just oh, remember to right. stay near the All right. right. I've got you. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Norman Burns. I'm executive director of the Maymont Foundation in Richmond, Virginia. And the Maymont Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that uh, operates, maintains, and improves Maymont Park for the city of Richmond. In a few minutes, I'll tell you a little bit more about Maymont Park because the best way to describe it is uh, it's a 100-acre uh, historical, zoological, and botanical park that we have about a half a million visitors every year uh, with a high residential uh, visitation uh, as, a, as a public park. Uh, but it is a high-end Gilded Age estate uh, that has remarkable historic arboretum as well as historic gardens that has developed uh, over time as a public park with the zoological components and things like that. But we are a free access park. Uh, and as such, the foundation is responsible for raising all of the money that it takes to continue to, for it to be free. And that has been a challenge that I'd like to address today. And I think that fits in very well with this mutual goals session. How do we balance the competing institutional goals of staying true to our mission while earning revenue? That's very difficult for all of us. And does it create a conflict of opportunity for nonprofit organizations? And in the case of Maymont, free admission comes with a cost, and it's all about balancing mission versus money. Uh, and that's what we like to say to our donors uh, 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 quite often, even though we're a free access park, uh, free does come with a cost. I thought it might be good for us as we're looking at this, uh, what we think is a balancing between mission um, and, uh, and, and money, and, and know that that's just a common conflict. Uh, business or money conflict uh, we, we can look at. If you look at this particular chart, you notice that the top side says keep staff at a minimum to be efficient. Uh, that, is an, uh, that is an action in order to control costs so we can have a sustainable growing organization. The flip side of that is on the customer service, we must provide full service, increase sales to have a sustainable organization. So even in business, uh, you have a conflict uh, over money. And as you uh, begin to look at that mission versus money, uh, uh, there is a there's a way of looking at this where a lot of times you start with uh, uh, with the action and demands as opposed to looking at the common goal. So you notice on the right side of this particular diagram, you've got the action demands of mission, action demands of money, leading to a system agenda, which is uh, eventually. Uh, the common goal, which is sustainable, profitable organization. And you're going to notice this little box around this that says non-negotiable, uh, and that uh, kind of leads us to this uh, statement. Both sides of a coin, if you think about it, when you flip a coin, you have heads or tails. But uh, how many of you ever think about the fact that both sides of the coin have an equal value? Uh, it's the same coin, but we use it in order to, to decide a conflict sometimes. Uh, one side wins, one side loses. Uh, but both sides of the conflict, just like a coin, always have equal and valid convictions. And it's uh, not me versus you. Uh, a lot of times it's the system. So we need to have systemic change in order to get to mission versus uh, money. Uh, the theory of constraints is something that's used uh, in the business world and, and manufacturing and can also be used in the nonprofit world, the premise being that all systems would have infinite growth except that uh, something is limiting the process and blocking that growth 
and that's the conflict or constraint or those types of things. And a lot of this is interconnected and we need to find what that constraint is to eliminate it. And I'd encourage you if you'd like to learn more about this it, uh, that you actually uh, go to uh, the website www.toc-goldrat.com. Uh, Eli Godrat is an Israeli uh, physicist who came up with this thinking process about 35 years ago, I think, applied it to manufacturing, and it's now used for conflict resolution. I know that sounds odd, but it's also very good for systemic change in an organization. Uh, and one way you do that is by collecting the symptoms in an organization, eliminating the undesirable facts, coming up with a solution instead of compromising, you're actually getting uh, to a common goal. Uh, and this kind of shows the undesirable effects. Most of you familiar with root cause analysis, have some of you done that in conflict mediation or things like that before? Uh, that's really what we're talking about. And once again, it's my action versus your action. You'll recognize that, don't you? Anytime you have a conflict, sometimes you'll, it's, it's, it's me versus you, that type of thing. And it usually has to do with the system. But usually there's always a common goal involved, but it's our demands. And when you think about how that applies to business or mission versus business, the primary conflict, as you can see here, is that uh, we want to build the business interest on the top side, so we need to manage a solid financial footing uh, in order to have a sustainable and growing organization. Uh, bottom side here, as we deal with the mission side of it, support the integrity of the museum and the mission, enhance the museum's standing reputation to get to this sustainable uh, model. Um, come on, go forward. Uh, if we think about history, history versus business, there's a secondary conflict. We want to build this uh, greater uh, model that deals with the, the mission. We want to increase the statue of the site, build a sustainable uh, all way, uh, uh, a system versus do it the way we've always done it, follow the path that's worked so far. Um, and that is uh, kind of the way that we look at it if you, if you think about it in mission versus uh, business. Sometimes we, we, it's an either or and we can get around that. I introduced that to you because it's, it's a model that I've used very successfully at different historic properties as I have been challenged with trying to balance between mission versus vision. Uh, or mission versus uh, uh, revenue and uh, in the business side. And I'm not here to talk about that today other than to introduce it. I'm actually here to talk about some of the things that we've done at Maymont uh, as an example of that. Uh, and uh, this is actually an aerial view uh, of Maymont, at least the historic side that you see. And Maymont is a unique combination, once again, as I said, historical, zoological, and botanical parks combined into three attractions. Uh, that's in one convenient location for the area and it's open free for everyone's education. Uh, we basically have looked at the three program elements of Maymont, history, habitats, and uh, horticulture. History, Maymont House is, the, is this remarkable mansion uh, that is, uh, is completely intact. Uh, we only have two physical uh, structures that do not exist uh, from the Gilded Age estate of the Dooleys. Uh, we have remarkable decorative arts collections that have been noted to be some of the best uh, uh, in the nation uh, by decorative arts historians. We have world-class uh, decorative art in the mansion. We have an in-service and be uh, beyond domestic life and work in the Gilded Age exhibit uh, that we worked with the National Endowment for the Humanities Zone, and they uh, still point to this exhibit as being the best example of interpretation like this for historic house museums in America. But we also have developed over time a zoological component. Uh, yes, we have uh, everything from otters, eagles, and, and bears uh, uh, at Maymont. We have a nature center that has the aquatic life as well as mammals 
uh, of the James uh, River. Uh, once again, you can see one of our otters swimming around inside one of the exhibits uh, at the Nature Center, and these are some of the exhibits that you see. But we started with this by a family bringing in a children's farm in the 1940s. Uh, when this was a public park, and it led to us having a children's farm and eventually wildlife at Maymont. And that's been a, an interesting component of what we do uh, with this public park side, including uh, public sculpture art and different gardens from vegetable gardens, butterfly gardens, and things that family can learn and enjoy. This is a William Turner sculpture uh, that, uh, as you see, the children and a dog are playing on a log in our, on our picnic hill area. Uh, and of course, families utilize that uh, quite well. But we also have horticulture, both the historic uh, Italian and Japanese gardens in Arboretum, as well as contemporary gardens. This actually is a 1932 topographical map that shows what Maymont looked, at after, looked like shortly after the Dudleys left. And we have a lot of evidence of what it looked like from uh, paintings that they commissioned in 1903, as well as historic photographs in the early 20th century. Uh, this is a Japanese garden, once again, a 1903 painting, 1925 photograph. 1950 from the time of the city, and this shows some of the changes that we made uh, starting with the Maymont Foundation in the, in the mid-70s. Uh, and you can see, once again, all this in one place. Italian garden uh, that the Dooleys, after visiting uh, Italy uh, in 1906-1907, decided to come back and build a similar raised garden with cascading fountains at their country estate in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, we're actually celebrating the 100th anniversary this year. 1915, that's what it looked like. That's an aerial view from the 1970s. Uh, this is just a few years ago with uh, an exhibit that we did for the 400th anniversary uh, of, uh, of uh, Virginia, uh, dealing with uh, the patriotic themes. Once again, just some of the imagery that you can see from these gardens. Our Italian gardens is one of the locations that we do grounds rental and a lot of wedding business. Uh, we actually do over $300,000 uh, of revenue on facility rentals, ground rentals, most of that being on weddings. But families use it in a lot of ways other than just facility rentals. This is a carriage lawn fountain. Uh, once again, uh, we have to operate this uh, uh, pretty much as a free access park for the city. The Dooleys left it that way. This is Major James Dooley. Uh, this is his wife, Sally May. They bought a dairy farm in 1886, built Maymont House in 1893. Uh, they lived there until 1925. By the time both passed, from 26 to 75, the city ran as a public park. The foundation was created in order to run it. The Dooleys, in their will, basically uh, said uh, that all the land known as Maymont, consisting of about 100 acres, shall be used as a public park, and all the contents of the homes will be placed at Maymont, and it shall be used as a museum for the use, benefit, and pleasure of the people of the city of Richmond. Now, this is their summer home which is actually larger than their home in Richmond, Swannanoa. And so all of the contents of this move to this as a public museum. Now, nowhere in this does it say that Maymont will be free. You notice it says, for the pleasure, for the benefit and pleasure of the people of the city of Richmond. Uh, this has led, uh, uh, this has led uh, to us to go back to their original mission. We changed it just a few years ago to say that Maymont Foundation will preserve and celebrate Maymont as a museum in part for the pleasure and education of everyone. So we're expanding that. And our vision is to uh, basically integrate our three program areas of history, habitat, and horticulture. And our strategic plans are aligned with this. So aligned with the original intent of the Dooleys of how it would be used, uh, but also our strategic plans call for things uh, dealing with programs and such. Three of those 
uh, uh, offering enhanced programs that are consistent with the mission and vision, the Maimon experience, and then also the brand and uh, message fit in very well with what we're talking about today, how we balance between mission uh, and revenue. Uh, once again, uh, an image of Maymont Park and all the things we do. This is the historic district. Dooley's Creek actually divides the property in such a way that we've developed this as more of the zoological component, where this is more of the history component. And we do a lot of things, as you can see from uh, this particular slide. Don't have enough time to go through all of those, but we do a lot of education with school kids. Uh, we do as many as 50,000 kids, both through standard of learning programs and other uh, non-scheduled uh, uh, type school trips. Uh, we uh, are governed, uh, even though the city of Richmond owns Maymont, the foundation uh, is free to operate it. So we have a board of directors as well as a obviously full-time professional staff in all of the areas that you see here and a lot of volunteers. About 500 volunteers contributing 15,000 hours. That's equivalent of uh, eight full-time employees for us, so we couldn't do a lot of these things. How's Maymont funded? Uh, the city does give us a small, uh, a small operating amount each year, but it only makes up about 12% of our operating budget. So you can see contributed income makes up a big part of it. We raise over $2 million annually outright in fundraising efforts in order to keep Maymont, uh, Maymont free. Uh, here is the thing that has been the challenge for us. In our operating agreement, it's very clear that uh, the Maymont Foundation, we have the ability to operate Maymont, set our hours, do a lot of things, but anything that the Dooley's left, that the city inherited from them in 1925, needs to be free. Anything that the foundation's been responsible for building, we could actually charge for. But the thing, the joy of Maymont through the years as a residential park is people have enjoyed it for free. And so if we start charging, that begins to take away from the unique nature. So we have primarily tried to keep everything that we've built, including that nature center that I showed you we built 10 years ago with exhibits, all free uh, for the past uh, 10 years. But that's led us to look at a lot of things. For instance, uh, this diagram shows very well. Uh, this is the flat city funding of the last 35 years. Uh, this is how the budget has grown through the years. Uh, this actually shows the opening of our nature center and taking us to a totally different level. Uh, and so you can see that we have to raise a lot of money in order to keep this thing going. Uh, and we're trying to uh, be true to our mission and this vision of integrating these three program areas. A uh, fine example of that is the original Dooley Quarry, uh, which was used to quarry stones for many of the buildings on the property, uh, is now our black bear habitat. And so that is, uh, that is something that's an example of that uh, integration. Just a couple years ago, we opened the new American bald eagle habitat in Raptor Valley. And it's a fine example of how we had a dream uh, to integrate history habitats and horticulture, taking uh, an existing uh, stone bridge that went over Dooley Creek uh, that really didn't go anywhere and actually integrate uh, Virginia uh, native uh, wildlife as well as Virginia plants into one exhibit in order for our visitors to enjoy it. And uh, we opened uh, this facility in September uh, of 2008 uh, with an American bald eagle uh, habitat. We have an interpretive center. We have an amphitheater as well as uh, other educational opportunities. Uh, the important thing to note here is this amphitheater 
which initially was going to be just for uh, standard of learning programs for students, we're now doing public programs in that are ticketed, and I'll tell you in just a few minutes that hasn't been as successful as we hoped on this balancing mission uh, versus money. And what you don't see, uh, well, you do see it here is the concession area where we uh, do things. So this is, a, once again, an opportunity where we have part of our mission and balancing, uh, uh, balancing out the mission versus money. And once again, it's stuck. Uh, here, once again, are some of the images from that. And uh, this particular project is where we begin to integrate uh, the three H's in, uh, into one area. Uh, this is probably the thing that probably uh, shows the greatest change that we've made and how we're looking at our mission. And remember that mission of celebrating, preserving and celebrating uh, Maymont as a park and museum uh, for everyone's enjoyment and education. Um, uh, we, the Nature Center, as I told you when we opened it in, uh, 10 years ago, it was free access. Uh, we had a museum uh, store that was supposed to be a profit center for, for the organization. Uh, it uh, never was a profit center. It was actually a drain on the organization. And in April of uh, 2009, uh, we actually closed our retail operation completely. So that seems odd that you would take what is a profit center for your organization and close it. But we did close it, and we repurposed that space uh, for facility rentals, uh, for environmental education classes, uh, Girl Scout programs, internal meetings, all things that we didn't have space to use. And then we moved the souvenirs that we were selling as part of our retail operation in the museum store out into a reconfigured front lobby where we went from information services to true visitor services and started selling the souvenirs. And I can tell you that uh, uh, we've actually done very well with that, a very proactive business strategy. Uh, we've actually exceeded our, um, our uh, gift shop sales by, with souvenirs as opposed to what we had done in retail the, the previous year uh, as a result of that. Uh, and uh, we also uh, started charging an entrance fee to the Nature Center. And this was something that was somewhat difficult for us to do. As I told you, uh, while our... Uh, the Dooleys never said that the park had to be free. That's kind of the way that we had developed through time. And this nature center had been free to the public for 10 years, and we had not changed any of the exhibits. Uh, we did take out, retire a couple of tired exhibits and replace them with some things we did internally, but we put our educators, our environmental educators, back on the floor for the general public and not just for the school kids. We op uh, reopened some touch tanks and learning areas with the educators working with the public, so we added value back to the space, and we charged a very nominal fee of $3 for adults and $2 for children. And uh, most of the national models that we looked at the t at the time said that when you go from a free exhibit to a paid exhibit uh, space, uh, you'll be lucky to capture 20% of your audience uh, on the low end, 40% on the high end. So we budgeted for the low end. And after exactly one year of doing that, we actually uh, had over $104,000 of new revenue. We only budgeted for 66,000. So for an organization that had never charged a mission fee for anything, and one that had to drop out quite a bit of, of uh, revenue over time because we've had to cut 18% out of our operating budget uh, over the course of two fiscal years, uh, like a lot of people have. And that was about a little less than $700,000. 
And so that meant, a, that meant eliminating positions, it meant furlough days, it meant a lot of things. And uh, uh, that's one way that we control budget, but we also began looking at ways to come back and build back with revenues. And this is a fine example of this. We did a lot of um, uh, public relations in advance on this, talking to our members, talking to the community about our need. And, and to be honest with you, before the economic downturn, we never talked to our community about what Maymont's needs were. People just thought it happened on its own, I guess. And so as a result of that, we are very happy that that's, uh, that that's been successful. We've also done some other things, uh, uh, fundraising uh, practices uh, through partnerships with the Boy Scouts of America, where they're utilizing our Eagle Plaza, and it's a statewide effort, and they're actually supporting our uh, Eagles with $5,000 a year. We've had a Tiger Cub uh, camp where they came and did it the whole week uh, at our place and paid us $5,000 using our environmental educators. Um, we've had uh, also recently uh, an example of, of, of something that uh, was done very quickly. We had a jazz festival uh, for the first one Richmond's ever had, and we had over 10,000 people uh, come to Maymont, and it was very profitable for us. So once again, that gives you an idea of this kind of balancing between mission versus money. And we have, once again, uh, this is one of our American Bald Eagle, and you see it says an eagle's eye on the future. We have a lot of projects uh, that uh, we're planning uh, for Maymont as we, as we look at integration and all of these balance, once again, between our mission and vision uh, for the organization and uh, how we can be profitable. We're looking at building a sustainable uh, organization. Uh, and I'd be happy to answer any questions later about all of this and uh, welcome you to go to our website at www.maymont.org uh, to learn more about us. And I'm sorry that I went a little bit past my time, I believe. Thank you. Good afternoon. Can y'all see me over the podium? This is, I like this podium. This is, this is short person friendly, so this is good. Um, have any of y'all been to the memorial since you've been in town? Oh wow, almost everybody, wonderful. Well, I am Stacy Weddington. I'm the development director for the Oklahoma City National Memorial Foundation. We own and operate the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. Um, I serve on the board of the Oklahoma Museums Association. I'm also on um, the board of our local Association of Fundraising Professionals, as well as on the board of Human Service Charities of America. I've been at the memorial for about seven and a half years in this capacity and done fundraising at other nonprofits before. I'm an accidental fundraiser, like most people in the room are, I'm sure. My background is special ed, so it was kind of an interesting transition from running group homes and sheltered workshops to raising money, but it's one that I have loved and have been doing this for many, many, many years now. The preamble to our mission statement. We come here to remember those who were killed, those who survived, and those changed forever. The memorial um, has a variety of funding sources, but the, the most problematic and opportunistic thing in my world is explaining people our funding sources and why we need funding. It is very confusing to our visitors when they see a National Park Service Ranger on the site. They assume that we are a federal site, that we receive federal funding, and that is not the case at all. We do not receive any annual federal, state, or local funding to operate, maintain, or secure the memorial. Park Service is actually on their own budget. They serve as interpreters of the outdoor symbolic memorial only. 
Now, the outdoor symbolic memorial is open 24 hours a day, free of charge, seven days a week. Um, it is visited by more than half a million people each year and truly 24 hours a day. Um, we get families coming through, you get business travelers, you get folks that come back down to the site after a concert in Bricktown. Um, there's always somebody there. Um, the reason we exist is obviously the tragedy that occurred on April 19, 1995. Um, we are very much um, reflective and respective of the past and why we exist, but we try not to be mired in the past. We, we use that date and that event as the launching pad for everything good that we've done since. Teaching the lessons, teaching the stories of hope and resilience and responsibility and respect. And we carry that through in our programs from preschoolers all the way up to adults um, here on the site and across the nation. One of the things that is a balance for us at all times is keeping in mind our core constituents, which are the family members of those killed, the survivors, and the rescue workers. No one was more deeply impacted by what happened that day and is more impacted by what happens every day since then than those, than those core folks. So we, we do everything with them in mind. They comprise, as a group, a third of our board, and always will, that is in our bylaws. So we always have that conscience, that closely impacted group to, to help us as a measuring stick, to tell us if we're off base or if we're not on base. Um, of course, so many of us, our director, Carrie, who, I'm sorry, couldn't be with you to speak to you all today, was the first employee hired. She was brought on staff just a few months after the bombing to coordinate the media. The, if you all remember, um, the 24-hour coverage. This was the first event that um, necessitated or even allowed for 24-hour coverage. So television was preempted, radio was preempted. Um, the, the media that converged upon Oklahoma City from around the world was something we'd never seen before and, and really I don't know that we've ever seen since except for some of the anniversary ceremonies. So Carrie came on board then. So you've got somebody who's been an integral part of this every step of the way. And the tenure of the staff is incredible. There's just very, very little turnover. It's, a, it's an amazing, incredible place to work. There's only 20 of us. That includes our maintenance crews and our visitor service staff. So we've got a really small group, um, and we are truly a family, and it is our honor um, to carry out this mission and, and to protect those stories and to make sure that they are shared for generations to come. When we look at our, our donors and we look at matching our, their motivations with our mission and our needs, it gets tricky because we can't put somebody's name on the 903 gate. It can't be the XYZ Corporation survivor tree. So we have to look at other ways to make those donors feel good about their investment in what we're doing. And we've done that in a variety of ways. One of the things that our donors have loved is we give them the opportunity to share with their partner school or a partner organization and let them bring a group in. Let them come through the museum. We do a special program for them. We give the students journals. We'll send them a hope trunk. That has been one of the things that our corporate partners have really, really enjoyed and it's a chance for them to share um, their love for the memorial with, with these kiddos. So that's been a really tremendous partnership. 
the main way we find out, you know, what they want and how they can help us fulfill their mission is just by sitting down and talking to them. Um, you know, we've got some really great partners, and they will make their needs known. And so we work together with them to create things that are helpful to them, whether it's programs on site, whether it's admission tickets, whether it's, um, you know, letting them use one of our rental spaces for free for a corporate meeting or something like that. We just work those things out with them, and it's been very successful. Um, when we talk about building the memorial, it um, that was before my time. I was not part of the capital campaign, but one of the ways we did that was through a grassroots effort called the 168 Pennies Campaign, and that involved school children here and across the nation, and we asked kids to give one penny for everybody that was killed. And those kids raised almost half a million dollars to build the memorial. And so when I get a donor that says, you know, I can only give you $500 or I can only give you $100, that's nothing. And I'm telling them, this place was built literally with pennies. It was built with pennies and million-dollar gifts. And your $100 will bring 20 children into this museum that wouldn't be able to come without that. So gifts of all size matter, and we, and we try hard to make sure that they know that any gift of any size is making a, a huge and wonderful impact on the memorial and who we serve. The memorial is, let's see if I can do this. May all who live here know the impact of violence. We are curb-to-curb -curb educators. From the time somebody pulls up to the site even if they don't get out of their car and they just are driving by because they're on their way somewhere else, we want them to learn something. And we were really reluctant for, for many years, and of course when you're dealing with a tragic event, a terrorist attack as we are, you're, you're talking about something where those people are still alive, the, those families and the survivor. I mean, we're not even hardly a generation out yet from the event. So emotions are still raw. So we were very slow, I would say, in starting to really talk about the needs of the memorial. But we've learned that letting people know what it costs to run the organization has really been very beneficial. When I talked about the Outdoor Symbolic Memorial, it's a three and a half acre site. It cost $865,000 a year to operate that site. Um, and the reasons for that are vast. One is the size. But the main reason is the world-class standard to which we hold ourselves and that site. Um, it is not okay for there to be a Dr. Pepper can on the ground. It is not okay for somebody's chair light to be burned out at night. It's not okay if the lights on the gate don't come on. So when those things do happen and a light does go out, that light is changed. And if it's 3 in the morning, maintenance is called by security, they come out, they change that chair. What if somebody's mom was out there and they came to spend the evening in a quiet, reflective moment and spend time with their daughter's chair and the light was out? Um, that's just not okay. So it, it's very expensive. We take great care. Each of the chairs is hand-blown glass, so the grass is hand-cut around them. You can't take a weed, weed eater or weed whacker to those chairs. So just the magnitude and the scope of it um, necessitates such expense. But it has really become a great symbol and a great beacon in downtown Oklahoma City. It is, it is a huge destination. We get visitors every month from all 50 states and about 24 foreign countries. Bobby Flay was there yesterday. 
Um, we never know who's going to walk in our door. He told us, he said, I never come to Oklahoma City without coming to the memorial. And he has made several visits. Um, we get them all, rock stars, politicians, authors. Um, some of them come in, you know who they are. Some of them are very quiet. They just want to spend some time outside. Some of them come through the museum. But it's, um, it's, it's those people that make what we do possible. So when we are this shining bright light in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City, it has to be perfect. So, and it does cost money. So $865,000 is what we raised just for the outdoor symbolic memorial. Each, this year, our fundraising goal is about 1.3 million. Um, so then we move into the museum, that's also museum operations. That is our education programs as well and all of our outreach efforts. We have learned that special exhibits are not, um, they're not the thing for us. We've done them, we've rented them, we have fabricated them. They've been very expensive and they've been a great thing for donors because they get lots of play, they get a great donor preview, they get to have a party in there, they get their name on a panel, but they don't drive traffic for us. So that is one thing that we have learned doesn't fulfill our mission. Um, in the way that we had hoped. And it is a, a revenue generator as far as sponsor dollars, but as far as bringing people into the museum, it just hasn't been real successful. So when we talk about the curb to curb education from the time they step onto the site, um, and that's through our cell phone tours, that's through our podcast, that's through the symbolic elements outside so they can learn about the survivor tree, learn about the gates of time, the reflecting pool, the rescuer's orchard, and what all of those symbols mean. And then we want them to come into the museum where they do pay admission. Um, that is the one place where we do charge and, and $10 for adults, eight for seniors, six for kids. I do raise enough money every year that pretty much any school group that wants to come through can do that without paying. So that's 20, 25,000 school kids a year that we fund um, through scholarship dollars through um, they have an application process that they go through and that has been very successful. We also in April, we're very pleased that the state of Oklahoma has now created a law that mandates teaching the story of the bombing in Oklahoma history. Prior um, to this year, that was not the case. And some teachers took the initiative and went ahead and did it, but now it's included in the past standards. So we're hoping that that'll really drive more children and school groups into the memorial and really help take our message and, and further it out. One of the reasons it's so important for us to teach kids, and especially kids now who weren't even born at the time of the bombing, is they need to know what that big thing is downtown when they pass something that says 901 and, and want to know what's going on there. I spoke to a school last week and I asked the kids if they had been and, and there was a boy that said, is that where all the tombstone chairs are? Um, and I said, well, the chair, you know, I explained what the chairs were, and I said they weren't tombstones, um, which is another, when you talk about that delicate balance, we're not a cemetery, and we don't want to be viewed as a cemetery. And a lot of, it's one thing for people to come, and we love for them to be respectful and reflective and, um, you know, and remember what happened and why they're there, but we also want it to be a place of joy and a sign that life has gone on which um, is the one reason that we approved um, a fundraising event 10 years ago called the Memorial Marathon. Um, we had a group of, of men that were out on a jog and they were complaining that they had to go out of state to go run a marathon. They couldn't believe that a city the size of Oklahoma City didn't have one. And by the time they had finished their run, they had conceived of an event, 
that would bring people to this city to, to compete in this event and raise money for the memorial at the same time. Um, that event is one of the greatest things in the world. It brings people to the site by the tens of thousands. We had 22,000 runners last year. Um, and the only way to really sum it up with those, with those folks who come, they get it. These people, they know it's not the Boston Marathon. They know it's not the New York. They know if they cross the finish line first, there's not a $50,000 check waiting for them. We'll never pay a penny to anybody for winning our race. We want people to come here to celebrate life and to help unite the world in hope. And that is, that is the mission of that event. The first year we had about 4,500 runners and the event raised $50,000. Because the missions of that event and the memorial have aligned themselves so well, and it's the event I work on all year long, last year's event had 22,000 runners and raised $750,000 for the memorial. So it's, it's a tremendous event, and we talk about the sensitivities of, of the families and the lives that were lost that we represent, and we have found some great ways to do that. Through the, throughout the city, along that 26-mile course, there's a banner that hangs for each person that was killed. And year after year after year, I will have runners tell me, I got to mile 23 and I thought I couldn't take one more step. And I sat down on the curb and I looked up and I saw a banner with J.C. Coyne's name on it or Bailey Allman's name. And they said, you know what, what I'm doing is nothing. Those babies never had a chance to grow up and run a step. I can get up and I can get myself to the finish line. And they do over and over and over again. So that is one of the great opportunities we have um, to show that strength and the hope. We start the race at the memorial with a sunrise service under the survivor tree and it ends right back at the memorial. And that is our one fundraising event. The rest of the money is raised through corporate partnerships, um, some foundation grants for the education programs and things and, and you know an annual fund event and some earnings off of our endowment. One of the things we've always had because most museums or historic sites will have collection boxes or something of the nature out and about. And we thought, you know, well, those are great, and people put some money on them, and they seem to like them. But when people have gone through the museum and they have started on a timeline, on a story that starts them on the morning of April 19th, 1995, and takes them through today, that is when we thought it's best to try to capture them emotionally, financially, by getting their email address, by that, that is when the people are most moved, when they've been through that part of the experience. So I said last year, I said, what if we do a little campaign, we'll, and it'll be a very passive campaign, we'll call it Pay It Forward. So we did a little envelope and we said, if this experience was meaningful to you and you'd like to share it with a student who may not get to come here without this $5, put $5 in this envelope. No one talks to them about it. No one's handing it to them. It's just at the end of the visit. We've raised about $20,000 in $5 bills starting last year. So if you can find a way to capture emotion, be that emotion joy or, or whatever, relief, sorrow, hope, whatever you all have to offer, um, that has been great. And like, it's not, you know, it's not a deal breaker. It doesn't make our budget, but it sure is a great grassroots effort um, and it's a way for people to feel like they've made a difference.
So we've been very, very pleased with that. Um, another thing we've done, um, there are some words I'm not fond of in the fundraising world when it comes to the memorial. Maintain is one of them, sustain is one of them. I just think they show, um, they don't show the emotion that I want people to feel when they're trying to connect to us, when I'm trying to get a donor to invest in us. So the word I've started using is guardianship. The people of Oklahoma City rose to a level of compassion and care and love that is still unequaled anywhere um, in the world that, that we can tell on April 19, 1995. From the lines wrapped three and four blocks long for people trying to give blood, to the people who truly gave the shoes off their feet to the rescue workers, dog food, food, ice cream, clothes, I mean, anything people could do, everybody wanted to do something. And I thought if we could recapture that affection and that commitment to an event and to a place, wouldn't that be fantastic? So I've scrapped the words sustain and maintain and I've replaced those words with guardianship. And so our annual donors are guardians of the memorial. We want them to feel that pride and that ownership because what we hear over and over from folks, especially our local folks, when I have visitors come in from out of town, this is the first thing they tell me they want to see. This is where they want to go. If we do nothing else while we're here, please at least drive me by the memorial. So we want those local visitors and those local residents to feel that sense of ownership. And so we've picked guardianship as, as the word for that. And that has worked well with our mission. It's worked very well with our mission. We've been very pleased with that. Um, so other than that, you know, the fundraising is about a third of what comes in every year. The rest is earnings of the, on the endowment and then the um, ticket sales and museum store sales. So that's it, we're really right at about a third, a third, and a third. We've got a great, great group of donors. Um, we love them. We're always looking to strengthen the partnerships and to enhance those and to create new opportunities that still align and are sensitive to, um, to what we do. So I guess I'll stop with that and then we can start our Q&A if that works for everybody. Thank you. In the tradition of mutual goal sessions, the rest of the session is for discussion. So if you have specific questions for our speakers or just general questions you'd like to throw out to your colleagues, this is your chance. Um, I'm going to turn the mic just a little in hopes that we will capture everyone. So remember, since it's being recorded, please talk loudly. So any questions or comments you want yes. to start with? school teachers, they will tell you I never stop talking. So that is probably the easiest thing for me because I love people and I love that process. Um, but working in special ed, I was finding the balance of matching the needs of adults with developmental disabilities with their program goals, keeping their parents happy, 
getting them jobs in the community. So I was already sort of doing the dance. Um, you know, I had parents who were like, oh, you know, now don't make him brush his teeth. He doesn't like to do that. And I said, well, he's going to really hate it if we have to take him to the dentist and have his teeth pulled out and dentures put in because he wouldn't brush his teeth. So, you know, from just that kind of life experience and in my career that way, I was social chairman of my sorority and rush chair. I mean, that's just sort of me. I just, I just love that. So it was really a pretty easy transition. I fell into it accidentally. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and I'm one of those people that wants to somehow get involved and make things better. So I did that through serving as a volunteer with the American Cancer Society and then ended up on their board, ended up chairing a fundraising event for them, and that's when I got the bug, and that's when I switched. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm just, you know, how to develop their report. With the donors? Yeah, to be able to approach people. It's just, um, you've got to be kind of fearless, and you're going to get told no a lot. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your organization. Um, that is if you do your homework. Now, you're asking somebody who only funds, you know, aquatic museums on the West Coast to give money to the Oklahoma City National Memorial, then I didn't do my homework, and I deserve my no. But other than that, if you, if you do your homework and you just start, you know, it's easy. Just bring people to the memorial. If they're scared to do that, and I will say that there are people that truly are. They're, it's what I call an emotional threshold that people have to cross to walk into the museum. Some people, it's nothing. For other people, they are 15 years later. They're not ready to, to relive the story. Um, so if they don't want to come to the museum, maybe they'll just meet me outside, or maybe they'll meet me for a cup of coffee, or meet me for, you know, for lunch, and you just start talking. And I think if you really, really love your organization and you are passionate about your mission and what you're doing, and the lives you're changing through your programs, your exhibits, through what you have to offer, I think it's contagious. And I think it's really probably not as hard as you think it is. Um, and and you, just, you just maintain it, you know, an email. You see them in a magazine. Oh my gosh, you, you know, tear off the page and send it to him. Here's an extra copy for your scrapbook. It's the little things that stewardship, which could truly be a whole other session on stewardship, which is probably my favorite part of my job. Um, but it's just maintaining that relationship, knowing, letting them know their value, making sure that you know, that you let them know you're accountable to them for their gifts. Um, if you say, we're going to spend your money this way, spend their money that way, and then let them know. You know, pictures, cards, thank you notes written from the recipients of those gifts. One of the things we do um, when we have a school group that gets to come through on scholarship, we let that school group know who made their trip possible. And those kids will go back, whether it's in crayon or on a poster board, 90% of them will do something to acknowledge that donor. And they love that. Another simple thing um, that makes your donors feel good, you know, I take my major donors and every time we have a board meeting, I have a little sheet that our designer, you know, puts up and puts together that thanks them for their gift and all the board members get a chance to sign it. Every time you do something like that, it's easier to pick up the phone and call them again. And if you only call them when you're wanting their money, they're not going to be as happy to take your call after they learn the pattern. But just, um, just they're people. They're just like you. They just have a different job. 
And their job is just as hard as yours. It's not easy to give away money because there's always a lot more people wanting it than they have to give. This is your chance. Questions, comments? It's four o'clock, the kiss of death session. <laughs> I'm not well, sure. I would say, um, um, interestingly, it struck me that both of the presentations, which I thought were excellent, didn't really show a conflict between the um, missions of your organization and your need to raise money. And I think that maybe I'm alone here, maybe there are many people uh, in the audience here that um, share the conflict that a number of historic sites share, which is the kind of farm with the tractor pull to bring in people. Or in our case, I'm being located, I work with Historic Hudson Valley, which uh, operates six uh, historic sites in the uh, lower Hudson Valley. In our case, uh, being located in the Sleepy Hollow, which is Halloween Central, and um, being forced really by the situation in which we find ourselves um, to put on a number of different Halloween-themed events um, that are really outside of the mission of the organization, which is to celebrate the art, the history, the landscape, and architecture of the Lower Hudson Valley, and um, to have 4,000 carved pumpkins uh, with a historic site as a backdrop at night, probably to most people would um, strike them as being a little bit outside of our mission, as well as having a haunted horror house called Horseman's Hall at Phillipsburg Manor, which is a, a colonial era farm and milling complex. Um, likewise, we strike a lot of people as uh, being outside of our mission. And yet, um, I think that the way we look at this is that uh, many of the things that we do do during the course of the year are mission-driven, and these other things that we do during the month of October um, actually kind of drive our mission. So uh, it's not so much of a question as I'm wondering if there are other people in the audience uh, might share uh, similar concerns. And certainly it um, refers back to the thing you said about uh, your person who didn't want a, a donor on a panel at the exhibition that she was curating. If you haven't already, which you may have, um, the, I'm sure you could have a really interesting conversation with the folks at the Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site in Philadelphia who run a big, huge haunted event for I think like two and a half months in the fall, uh, turning this stabilized but not restored historic prison into historic haunting. So you might have some interesting conversations with them. And, it's, and that's sort of what was the idea behind it is in each institution, you know, what are the things you feel like you can live with because you need the revenue and what's crossing the line? Well, one of the things, because I had a lot of slides and I was trying to get through it, um, uh, the thing about us charging admission uh, is actually outside the comfort zone of our board and in the community. Uh, because Maymont has been, has been this free access um, uh, park for over 85 years. And so the perception in the community is that the Dooleys actually in the will said it would be free, and that's not what they said. Uh, and the city has always seen it as a free access park. So that, that was a little tough for us at first to look at that, uh, but, but it happened. Then you notice the Jazz Fest that I kind of said in passing. Uh, we actually had to close Maymont for two days. Uh, and our management agreement with the city of Richmond allows us to set our own hours, but we had never closed Maymont uh, 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 to the public, ever. 
Uh, now we have closed early sometimes to accommodate certain facility rental type groups for grounds and even for other musical concerts, but we had never closed. And so we had to do a lot of public relations work with the city and with the community to help them understand what our need is and what our mission is. And as it turned out, we had very little complaints uh, about uh, the citizens of Richmond not having free access uh, to this park and what this jazz festival meant to the economic development of the city and uh, uh, the celebration of music at Maymont uh, was something that fit within our mission. Uh, but once again, that was something that we had to look at. I mean, the mission and our management agreement and those things uh, were a, a little controversial uh, at first. And we have done some other things uh, along those lines. I mean, we do over 100 weddings uh, a year in our Italian gardens and other places on the ground that come in conflict quite often uh, with our normal visitors. So we have to balance that. Uh, you know, uh, almost on a, on a daily uh, basis. So uh, there, are other, there are other things there that I didn't go into, but uh, uh, you're right. It's, uh, uh, it seems like the, perhaps we do a good job of balancing. What about some other folks in the audience uh, uh, along these comments? Any, any of you uh, balancing them? Just a perception that I think in some ways what we're dealing with is, you know, portfolio earnings now. Endowment is coming in at 2% instead of we were pulling 10% off at some, at, you know, 10 years ago for operating. We can't do that anymore. So we have to go to you know, popular culture, to those things that are going to get people in. I lived in Terrytown for 10 years. Um, you know, it, Phillipsburg Manor wasn't the highest attended facility out there. So, you know, to get your name out is probably a very good thing, too. But, you know, in the, in the long term, can we revenues back up that are um, more, more mission-based, um, let's hope so. But do we close our facility rather than have a Halloween party? Yeah, because I think the trend lines, I mean, if you look at the trend lines from historic house museums across the country and historic sites, and they're universal going in this direction as opposed to that direction. I'll just add a sort of maybe related quirky little scenario that, that I see playing out. I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes from Hershey and 45 minutes from Gettysburg, which is probably in both cases the more landmarks you're going to be familiar with rather than Harrisburg. Um, my husband's a freelance actor. I did note I lived in South Central Pennsylvania. He works for Ghosts of Gettysburg. Now you probably are more familiar with the whole idea like will there be a casino in Gettysburg, which is a whole other nightmare scenario, but I think we're up to at least five different companies that ask to do ghost walks in Gettysburg. And this is exceedingly controversial. It is very interesting because obviously there is a demand or there wouldn't be a supply. But yet, you have residents having hissy fits. Um, he found, my husband has, has said, the most interesting one he has found is the guy who complained about ghost walks walking by his house. They're not stopping, they're walking by his house, who happens to live on Fraternity Road for Gettysburg College. <laughs> so, you know, we're not consistent. Unfortunately, people are a little wacky. I know when he first started doing it, I was mortified. I'm like, I have a degree in history, my husband's doing ghost walks. But people seem to like it. 
and they're not on the battlefield, so, but it makes for interesting discussions sometimes. Uh, the previous place I've worked at, Historic House Museum in Nashville, Tennessee, we actually did a Halloween event uh, where we, we did uh, storytelling uh, that was relevant to the site that we had, but uh, they were still uh, scripted uh, type pieces and they were edutainment, I have to admit that. That included doing uh, some museum theater pieces and we actually took, uh, uh, did one of the ghost uh, stories uh, in the family mausoleum that had been vacated for, for uh, 85 years at that point. Uh, but it was a way, there was some, a need, uh, there was a demand on an audience in late teens through the 20s uh, that really liked that type of thing and we were able to generate several thousand dollars of extra revenue on, on one evening and, and do educational programming, pick up some memberships and, and things like that. And our staff enjoyed doing it. We actually created uh, also a dinner theater uh, component, not to that event, but as a result of doing those things uh, while we're there. But the turn flip side of that is we also created the Juneteenth celebration uh, for our site that had nothing to do with, um, you know, with, with that side of it. So you have to balance sometime uh, between the mission and once again, the, the business side. Jeff, you had your hand up. I'm just wondering if you had thoughts about tying fundraising events to commission on purpose? Are you directing at the both of us, or? Well, we, we, tie, we tie all of our fundraising uh, into our programs because we use it as cultivation. We train our board, and we, I've, I've put the graph up very quickly. We have a large board, 45 board members. Uh, and so we, we train them to, to look at uh, using Maymont. And um, uh, Maymont is a beloved institution in Richmond. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone loves it. They see what our function is in the community, and so, uh, truly the property sells itself. So for those that don't know it well, though, our board members have the capacity to bring them out for what we call luncheon tours. And so we, the property kind of sells itself, but we also uh, have them uh, bring them to the various events that we have. And so we use that to cultivate uh, uh, through board members as well as uh, we have suspect lists, suspects people have no connection uh, to Maymont uh, that we use to cultivate and bring them into the prospect area. So. Uh, we, we use our programs as, as part of what we're doing. So I think that kind of shows the balancing, once again, of, of mission, uh, uh, mission and uh, money. And what we've tried to do is uh, sort of, as much as possible, dissolve that education programming and then everything else line by talking about perfect, pro I mean, everything is education. You drive by and you see the chairs, you're learning something. If you see the survivor tree, you're learning something. So it doesn't have to be a program where you get kids in chairs, at desks, or in, taking a tour through the museum to be education. And so that's, that's one of the ways that we're kind of trying to, to blur those lines and to fully integrate the education and in, in just to everything just to our existence. Let me give you an example of, of uh, kind of an entrepreneur entrepreneurial type of opportunity. Our director of horticulture had, uh, was aware of a, uh, of a botanical garden that had used a fundraising tactic around summer solstice. Uh, and she brought it to our development department and said, what about this idea? And the idea is that, uh, that you have people in the community that uh, have nice gardens themselves, that, uh, that love your organization, and you ask them to actually host a party uh, at their home. And they host a party, they invite their friends, and they ask for a donation uh, the help with the gardens of Maymont. 
And so on summer solstice, June 21st, we had parties across the city and we brought in almost $25,000. Uh, and we had no expense to ourselves. I mean, the development department wasn't even really responsible for it. I know there was some work done there, but, uh, and uh, I attended a lot of the parties, but still, it was, uh, uh, that's an example of, of, of the people aligned perfectly with horticulture, the people that love the gardens of Maymont. They have their own personal interests. They love our director of horticulture and what she does in the community. And so that was a perfect alignment of a, something that wasn't a program as much as the program area said, Let's look at your gardens. Let's look at your passion for gardening, for horticulture, and let's apply that uh, to, to Maymont. It gave us a chance to cultivate. A lot of people were invited to these home parties that didn't know about Maymont, and they, they learned that evening. And, and sometimes we say no. And, um, and it doesn't matter how much money it would bring in. The, uh, the publishers of Timothy McVeigh's so-called autobiography, American Terrace, wanted to um, donate proceeds from the book to us. We didn't want their proceeds. We said no. You know, so um, sometimes that's, that's okay. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And we've learned, you know, we've learned to use our filters. And we've all been empowered. The leadership team all has those filters in front of them at all points. So if you get a phone call, you know, you can, you can pick up your sheet and you can just you know, does it pass the smell test, yes or no? And we've all been empowered to make those decisions. Well, I was just going to comment on some of the other previous conversations. I'm from uh, Maker Settlement and Outdoor History Museum in Naperville, Illinois, and we do a lot of the similar things Norman was saying. And with our grounds rentals, though, we have found that it's also a community response, even if it's not 100% related to our mission. For instance, one that we do that the community asks for every single year is a wine festival. Now that's an outside rental. It's not really linked to our mission, but we are bringing young people to our site who would never be exposed and think of coming to us otherwise. And then it's our job to, to introduce them and get them a little intrigued to come back at another time. As far as Halloween being a historic site, everyone always thinks of that. Uh, we've twisted it to present 19th, spoofiest 19th century literature. And so we do vignettes and things, and so it gets a little bit past that, but the basis is still that 19th century connection. And that has served, just like in Norman's case, the older audience, because typically we serve a young audience. And this hits more, we take the junior high and, high and older, and you get more and more just adults coming out. And we actually discourage the young families. We do get complaints because they think that the young families should get to come. We say we can't do it for everyone. But we have refused some rentals where we feel it's in conflict with the use of our grounds and our site. Yeah. And very, very strict rules on what people can do or not on the site. Yeah, we, we do too. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of nonprofits in town that, that contact us right. and they want to hold their own fundraising events at Maymont. And we uh, have discouraged that except for one case where we, we felt the partnership was in order and we allowed it. But uh, uh, because we are this large 100-acre park and we do a lot of programming ourselves, everyone sees it. As a matter of fact, after we did the Jazz Fest, uh, I had five phone calls the following week of other mm -hmm. music producers that wanted to rent the grounds. And they wanted to be the person who put on this Jazz Festival next year. So. That's an example of that. I want to go back to your comment back there about aligning programming uh, at Maymont, and uh, I'd like to see if any of, if 
anyone else in the room has a similar situation. We do a lot of affinity group fundraising, for instance. Uh, we have what's called our Maymont Council that's uh, specifically responsible for raising money for conservation, uh, preservation and restoration of our decorative arts and gardens. And they raise over $50,000 every year as part of our operating budget. Uh, we have what we call our Duly Noted Society, which is a young professional group that raises money specifically for Maymont, and they raise over $60,000 a year. A lot of that through events on the grounds, like an annual wine and beer classic, and they have an annual spring auction, and they do a lot of other fun activities. We have a Doctor Living Thing program uh, where we actually, uh, the children, uh, students in the city of Richmond, surrounding counties, actually raise money and adopt animals at Maymont. And that one program alone raises about $40,000 uh, through the school systems as well as other people that uh, uh, donate throughout the year and that's about another 50000 comes through that. So we do a lot of affinity groups that kind of work and raise money for specific areas. Do any of y'all have groups like that? This is more than I've ever had at a place having this many affinity groups raising money but uh, what about anyone else? Do you have similar programs or know of any? Um, because that is an example, once again, these groups are specifically aligned with a particular program area and have an interest in that. Well, one weekend, it's not quite an affinity group, but it's a group of volunteers who tried to come up with how could they raise money. And they originally started by going to the roadsides and collecting natural plant material that was growing in the open areas and then making them into dried floral arrangements for sale. Now we don't have any open land left anymore, so they have to actually grow the materials. Uh, and then they also started getting collectible containers and putting arrangements in that, uh, differentiating between the antiques and the collectibles. And this has been going on for over 40 years. They're affectionately called the Weed Ladies, and it's become a very social activity as well as a fundraiser that we rely on every year. So what happens, someone broached that, I think you broached the idea of what happens if we don't have the money to operate these sites anymore because we're all about mission and we can't balance those. They close. That means collections are dispersed. Maybe sometimes other nonprofit organizations that will use them appropriately or perhaps antique shops and they go into private collections. Perhaps that historic home has turned into bed and breakfast or perhaps it's demolished. Nothing wrong with adaptive reuse of facilities and but still, that's the point. I think sometimes uh, the mission side has gotten more play than the balancing with the, with the revenue side, and it is a challenge, but they both should have equal value, I think. I remember the, I don't know much about it, but Connor Prairie, the, that balloon thing they're yes. doing now, I guess, you know, incredibly successful. Major turnaround. Who would have thought just putting people up at 200 feet, you know, but it's, it's a unique experience. Well, Having, having been a director of a living history site and on the Alfam side, when I heard that Connor Perry was going to that business model, I must admit I was a little, not concerned, but I was like, what are they doing? And uh, a couple years ago, I had a chance to go visit after it opened. And once I saw how that fit in with their business plan and saw what they created thematically, historically about that area that the visitors got to enjoy and the way that they were educating with it, uh, you know what, it's, it's actually pre it's a pretty good idea uh, because they took a, 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 an event and built and took the history around that event in that community and have made it fun and, uh, uh, and 
I don't know how historically accurate some of it is, but uh, still they've made it fun, and definitely there's good, there's good history behind it. So. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, you, maybe you don't wanna go back and revisit your mission statement, but maybe you tweak or create a vision statement or strategies to reach your mission, fulfill your mission, that include some of those things. Um, there's ways to make them align. You know, first, people were not excited about, there's gonna be people running through the memorial, you're gonna have like joggers running through the site, and it's like, yeah, we are. Because that person that flew in from, whether it be Pennsylvania or Texas or Australia, they may not have ever come here for any other reason but to participate in this race, and they're here. And they're running through the site, and they're learning, and they're taking it in, and they're using their free ticket into the museum throughout the weekend while they're here. And they go, and they read through the, the 901 or 902 book that describes everybody that was killed and tells you about them as people, and they pick one of those people and write their name on an in honor of them, and they put it on the back of their running jersey. So there's a million reasons and a million ways that we've tied this all together and made it work. Um, but just to look at it on the surface like a marathon, you know, but you can get there. And, and we use a local called Sports Backers. It's actually, they run, they do marathons, they do a lot of things in the community, but they have rented, once again, rented Maymont and, and uh, branded a race called the Maymont Half Marathon and other things that they do each year. As a matter of fact, it's this weekend. Uh, at Maymont, and they pay a fee to use Maymont, but we have a branded uh, race at, at Maymont. We don't have, uh, we're not getting the type of revenue from a, from a full thing, but still part of that sharing, partnering with the for-profit community to do things, because uh, Sports Backers is actually a for-profit company. We've got about two minutes left. Are there any final thoughts or questions? Well, thank you all for coming, and thank you for participating in this discussion and enjoy your evening. Um, if everyone can fill out oh, yes, their, I forgot. Um, their survey, they have, if you don't have one, we'll get one for you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <coughs> Thank you, and, and I really, I haven't had a chance to visit the museum.